name is Aram Milkamov and I am the co-founder and CEO of Crowdlinker. Thank you for joining me. I'm the host of Crowdlinker's corporate innovation series. Um, we have here today Kim Chung from Empower uh, Financing, who is going to be participating in today's episode. Thank you so much for joining. Kim, nice to have you. Yes, likewise. Like, nice to be here. Um, I'm going to quickly... Uh, tell you a little bit about Crowlinker, what we're doing with this uh, fireside chat series, and then intro you into uh, the topic that we have today, and then go into introducing our guest and getting into uh, the juicy conversation that we're going to have uh, with Ken today. So I'm really excited. Thanks for being here um, as well. So um, quick uh, pitch on Crowlinker. Uh, Crowlinker is an award-winning digital product design and engineering studio. Uh, we work with companies of all sizes, small, medium, large enterprises, and we help them on ideation, validation, design, and building everything from proof of concepts, POCs, to MVPs, and full production designs uh, and builds. And so today uh, uh, we have Ken joining us, and the topic that uh, he's participating with us on is high growth startup lessons for corporate innovators. And reason why we're doing this fireside series as well is so we could fill that gap, that void that we feel is missing in the market around getting true insight coming from innovators at different organizations around what it takes to actually build uh, innovation within their organizations. And so uh, Ken today is gonna to be talking about his journey from enterprise to startup contrasting his experience working in the innovation department of small and large organizations and offer tips on keeping his team focused during the pandemic. Uh, so without further ado, let me introduce you to Kin Chung. Kin is the vice president of credit innovation at Empower Financing. Um, quick housekeeping, uh, be sure to check out our corporate innovation episodes that we're going to have on our uh, YouTube page and follow us on LinkedIn to get access to more exclusive contents. Uh, let's get started. Um, Ken, thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to start off the first question with you uh, by uh, asking about, you know, in, like innovation specifically in the last kind of four uh, fireside chats that we've had, what we've seen from other innovation leaders transitioning from startup to large enterprises, uh, you kind of had that reverse approach. So you've moved from large organizations uh, to heading corporate innovation at a startup, a scale-up. Can you tell us a little bit about your previous roles uh, working within large organizations to give us some context? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I started off, um, first position was at Capital One, um, initially on the business side. And over time, I rotated through, you know, multiple functional areas, um, including credit risk management, finance, um, and as well as economic capital. Um, one of the highlights actually of my time there was I was part of the business team that developed the 9.9% uh, superprime credit product, um, credit card product. This was actually very new at the time. Uh, credit cards were all like one size fits all high interest rates. But Capital One decided to experiment and try something a low rate that was attractive enough to try to keep customers instead of them, you know, just rotating from credit card to credit card. And um, part of the team that made it work were really exciting times there. Um, and I learned a lot through that process. Um, after Capital One, I joined Fannie Mae uh, initially in a credit role, leveraging my experience from Capital One. Um, but then around the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, I was given an opportunity to join um, the, uh, the ABS portfolio group. Um, you know, they said, hey, we like how quickly you can learn things. 
would you be interested in doing this? You know, you just might have no experience. That was the most glamorous um, industry at the time in finance. Um, I didn't realize how quickly it was going to blow up. But, you know, at the time, you couldn't say no to an opportunity like that. So I joined. Um, and during my tenure there, that was probably my longest tenure um, in any particular role, uh, one particular role. But um, I got to see all the innovations that uh, in financial engineering that they were coming up with, you know, with product and securitization combinations. They were creating that almost like monthly. There was always something new coming out in the market. Um, but, you know, it all blew up. And in the aftermath of the uh, financial crisis, we had to create all these new processes. Uh, we, you know, we were set up as um, an investor in AAA highly rated securities. But then, you know, at the end of that, we had a portfolio with a lot of junk bonds in them, rated junk. And we had to learn how to manage these at scale, something nobody else in the industry has to deal with. But having been stuffed up only as a AAA investor, so that was kind of very interesting. And um, you know, I saw the time out, and uh, as things were beginning to wind down, I looked around, and as luck would have it, I was recruited to um, join AIG, help build up what was called the science team at that time. Uh, they wanted to bring cutting-edge analytical techniques, you know, like they were very common in financial services, but they wanted to bring it to insurance. So mm -hmm. that was a very interesting role for me. I decided to join that, um, but uh, they they hit some cost constraints um, they were the cost were going up too quickly in the company overall and then that led to some reorganizations and the um, structure wasn't that good for didn't wasn't that suitable for me anymore but again I, you know I got lucky um, at that time Fenway Summer which was a new startup um, that was backed by the former acting director of the CFPB uh, they were creating this group and wanted to launch a couple of financial services companies so uh, there was a good opportunity there in credit I joined them and, um, you know, got spun off into a, a company, a couple of companies there. Um, eventually, I ended up at Empower Financial, um, which is where I am now. Uh, this is a publicly a public benefit corporation, um, and we provide educational financing for global citizens. Awesome. Wow, that's a really impressive uh, career you've had working at uh, some amazing companies. And uh, I want to ask, you know, what what made you transition uh going from large enterprise to a to a startup a scale-up um and what made you want to, to continue working what made you not want to continue working at, at some of the large organizations yeah i, I actually have no objections to working in a large corporation i mean i think both the start and small have their own advantages and disadvantages so i would say it's not so much you know big versus small that is the decision maker for me but um, i view it as opportunity and uh, and the fit so, you know, if you think about it early in my career, I had no business background. I was previously on a purely academic track. I thought I was going to be a professor. Oh, really? um, I changed okay. my mind before I graduated. So, you know, I scrambled, got a job. Um, and, you know, if I look back now, when I first started at Capital One, I didn't know what I didn't know. There were so many business areas I had no exposure to previously. I was just learning. It was like drinking from a fire hose. Um, you know, so roles that were a good fit for me at that time were where I could use my analytical strengths, right? I was a mathematician very good analytically with concepts etc but i really didn't know what else i needed to be aware of so i needed the guidance of experienced business managers um, and you know i even though i could learn quickly it's still better to have somebody who knows all these things so you, you, you sort of have that knowledge quicker than having to learn it from scratch um, so as you can see you know over time i worked in different industries within even alongside various functional areas so i've built up a, a broader knowledge and better understanding of what i know what I don't know. And so, you know, like what, what makes me comfortable now working in a startup is if I make sure that they, they have leaders in the company 
that can complement my skill set, but mm -hmm. where they have gaps that I could fill. So, you know, since I'm, there's less unknowns for me, I feel a lot more comfortable being in a startup. And I know how to judge things better just given all that knowledge. Um, so as I said, it's not so much big or small. And I think it's similar with innovation also. Um, you know, you've got to match the opportunity with the capabilities, right? Um, if I want to innovate to squeeze, you know, 10 basis points of yield by building better models or a slightly uh, better product or market it slightly better, that makes sense if you have a large portfolio where 10 basis points, you know, covers a big enough um, dollar amount to be making money back. But mm -hmm. that doesn't work for, um, a small company. So, you know, if you look at it, um, I prefer, I have a preference to work on problems where I can make that larger change. So I, I want to look for less mature Impact. problems, right? Mm -hmm. Then to have to be trying to squeeze every last drop of efficiency out of a process or improve a model, you know, like your, uh, your, your metric uh, area on the curve goes from 60% to 61%. <laughs> I'm not that excited about that, but going from the 50 to 60%, that's really where I like to be. Got it. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. And what, what do you think holds, um, why do you think large organizations uh, struggle sometimes with innovation or innovating? Is it like their mindset, their bureaucracy, the culture? Uh, in your experience, like, what do you think holds them back the most? Um, I think, you know, like you mentioned legacy systems, it's very interesting to me, um, you, you know, like, and, and we do hear stories of that, right, small companies, they say, oh, we didn't have a legacy system, so I could build it from scratch and do it correctly. Um, but, you know, there's a catch there. Once you build that version one, you now have a legacy system. So, you, you know, it, there could be multiple competitors, and then the one you hear that built the right version one, they were the ones who got it right, but we may not, you know, so there's a, there's a catch there. Um, you know, I would love to be able to like say there's one thing that holds um, large companies back. I think it holds everybody back uh, due to different things like, um, you know, big companies actually have advantages small companies don't have. For example, their financial strength, their, their balance sheet. They can tolerate more failures than a, uh, a startup can. Oh. Um, and, you know, I think we have a, a survival bias where we hear more about the startups who succeeded. But um, I would love to hear more from people who failed and sort of had to try several times before they succeeded. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the other hand, uh, I think smaller companies have flatter organizations, so you have more opportunity to impact the company. Um, they're better focused. They don't have to worry about cannibalization. Um, you know, I think one thing like uh, that's holding back potentially, or my, my opinion, that's holding back um, securitization right now is if I want to improve, um, you know, the profile of ABS or the sort of investor um, benefits from that or make it more attractive. Well, if I have a large legacy book of securities, that could get devalued. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a consideration for a big company. If I have all that legacy business, I don't really want to impact the value of that if I create a new product. So how do I protect that? Those are constraints that really, I think, limit them. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm the startup trying to steal business from them, you know, I don't have that constraint. So, and just out of curiosity, I mean, smaller companies, I mean, depending on how the company's structured, they typically sometimes have flatter organizations. So um, they could be a bit more disruptive and sometimes go after larger elephants mm -hmm. in the space to kind of capture some market share. What do you think is like the key to innovation sometimes in those situations? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as, as we try new ideas, um, the, the key is really to be um, flexible. So what I would like to call preserving optionality, right? Um, an opportunity arises, do we have the flexibility to move on it quickly? 
right? Some, some big companies don't have it because they have goals for this year, they have current customers to deal with, etc. cetera. Um, but they also have advantages and flexibility because they can finance it. So small companies have to be judicious, you know, et cetera. Right. But they can take advantage of where they can move more quickly. I don't have the lazy book to worry about. Um, I don't have to worry about, you know, like uh, the, my, my previous reputation, for example. So I'm, I'm not defending, I'm attacking. So uh, preserving that optionality. So like I mentioned, you know, building the version one of a system, if I built it with flexibility so that if I had to build a version two, I can do it quickly, mm -hmm. then I can innovate. So it's really, what's my solution space, um, building the systems to fit within that solution space. And then if I find there's an opportunity outside that solution space, can I innovate quickly enough, find a workaround or something, kind of like what big companies have to do with legacy systems, how do I then accommodate the functionality I didn't consider in those ways? Interesting. And like on that note, I mean, with um, when it comes to performance, um, how do you think performance management should be set up in a large organization to support innovation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually difficult to do well, right? Um, you know, the, for a large corporation with so many people, you want to do things easily. So the, there's this um, tendency or, or uh, temptation to use a one-size-fits-all approach, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at business objectives, if I want to optimize a mature business, as I mentioned before, getting that 0.1%, that's very different than developing the next growth product, you know, which, and that's got a very different risk profile too. You know, um, if you have a large business, it's compatible with having very predictable objectives, like you can do Six Sigma on that. If I have a small sample size, I'm innovating on a new business, uh, looking at a few customers, Six Sigma is not is never going to work on that situation. Um, right. Timelines are uncertain, so you know if you tell me what's your objective one year from now, well, I might be able to tell you I want to get to a certain growth ratio or industry penetration, but I may not even know what the profitability is because it, you know, especially at the beginning, I had to build something twice, then my cost, my I have exceeded my cost budget potentially. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Um, you can also tr you can try to take a portfolio approach, you know, where you innovate over a large number of projects. Um, that's kind of what I think hedge funds do. <laughs> they they sort of invest in multiple companies and they win even if only ten percent of the companies succeed. Um, you know, unfortunately for the other ninety percent of the companies, they're out of a job, right? Those employees there. I don't like to do that to my teams, <laughs> and I don't like to be one of the ninety percent within a company that fails. So you know, how do you make that compatible how do you have objectives that are compatible with that while tolerating those failures um, i think that's one of the challenges mm -hmm. interesting and what about conflicting goals with bau um is it sometimes tough to convince uh business to sign off on certain things yeah i, I mean so you could have conflicts um you know due to the innovation team having a goal right that conflicts with a regular business group um if i want to push through a new idea um that is part of this business unit but they're performing very well you know, mm -hmm. they would be reluctant, and I've actually experienced that before, they were reluctant to make adjustments, you know, that distract them and could um, impact their achieving the year-end goals, right? If they're right. very close to getting that next level of bonus or performance, and then I'm saying, hey, can you do this? I'm a distraction to them. And so they may not want to cooperate. So timing is also important there in terms of where the goals are. Um, you, the new product or idea might actually have a cannibalization effect. Mm -hmm. um, so they will have to take a short-term hit to realize future gains. Again, unless they have the innovation in their objectives, they may not want to sign up to that idea because their goal is to, I got to hit this number, I want to beat it, uh, get my bonus this year, versus, you know, let's worry about three years from now, you know, three years from now. 
So I think it's important to have cross-functional alignment of these goals. Um, one other thing I want to throw in here is the timeline. My timeline for innovation uh, it usually often exceeds the annual performance man management cycle. Um, you know, you invest today and it may not pay back a few years later, right? So if I'm like managing a budget on, and, and quite often innovation budgets are charged or allocated to the business units. So if I'm managing the business unit, I look at that and say, you've hit me on cost three years in a row, where's my profit, right? So now they start managing it like um, expense, cost center. And then they say, no, we're not gonna put more in it until you show me some results. So they've been artificially restricting the innovation. And then when the investment begins to pay off, they're not spending that much, but this is the payoff from previous investments. And then in that year, it looks like you've got this huge return for very little spending mm -hmm. because the, time, the timelines don't match up for the spending and the return. And, and then of course, it looks really good. They're very happy, but then it can also create an unrealistic expectation going forward that you can produce this return every year. That's right, that's right. And um, with innovation, um, I mean, there's an obviously an uptick in global demand for innovation professionals, you know, now more than ever with like everything going on with the pandemic. Um, and so there's a lot of demand for innovation in, you know, companies of all size. Um, but you see a lot of people who have startup backgrounds go into innovation roles at larger organizations so that they could help them because they have that mindset, right? Um, how do you think large organizations can make themselves more attractive towards attracting these innovation professionals and retaining them like short and long-term in their, in their organizations? I think the attracting part is the easy one. And actually big companies are usually very attractive to someone who's like, you know, maybe didn't have a big budget before. Especially like, you know, if I'm very confident, self-confident, I think I can, I can do something new and I'm confident of success. Stepping into a large organization, you know, it doesn't seem to be that big of a challenge. Um, you know, I mentioned some of the larger um, corporate wide, uh, it's not so much politics, but just the dynamics within different business groups that could come into play. Um, but then also, you know, I think innovation has an element of risk. Um, and there are a lot of things that we may not know exactly, right? Like if I start a new product, I don't know exactly how I'm going to market it. Um, so it might take a bit of time to sort out and figure out what will work. Um, so, but if it took me a bit longer, you know, um, if I got lucky, it looks good. I think I'm, I was very smart. <laughs> um, but if I, I'm a bit unlucky, then it doesn't look so good. And that's where trying to retain someone might be challenging because if you penalize them for just bad luck, then, you know, it's no longer an attractive position for them. Um, as I mentioned before, right, if um, I have a one in 10, I don't really want to get my bonus one year every 10. You know, I have a one in 10 of succeeding and I have sort of annual projects. So it's really, how do you judge someone and be able to reward them even on projects that don't really succeed? You know, I think you can judge them on the appropriateness of the risk, right? If that risk was the right risk to take or the right um, decision to make, then don't judge them on the, the outcome, judge them on the decision. Um, and then also what benefits did you get from doing that? If I tried something and identified that this product, there's no demand on it right now, that is value for the company. You don't have to invest in trying to grow that business or, or worry about competitors in that segment unless there's a different twist on it. So there's value to the company there. And I think recognizing that type of value is important. But um, having said all that, I think those are very difficult things to measure. And we have a tendency or a preference to measure what's easy rather than measure what we should be measuring. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I think 
taking that effort to define those metrics is important. And just out of curiosity, I mean, in the organizations you worked at, what what was some uh, ways to support innovation at an individual level, like uh, to creating a, a system or mindset or framework around helping some of the people in innovation role to be successful or yeah. to not penalize them for certain you know, things that they do? Yeah, I think it depends on how the innovation is coming around. Uh, you know, like this is a long time ago. So when I was at Capital One, um, innovation, at least within, as I said, within a solution space, um, it was very well part of the business process as usual. Um, they were looking at doing tests all the time. They were testing all the time, different ideas, different product combinations, whatever they could modify very easily, even product features, they could test that. And sometimes they would have to develop new, new capabilities mm -hmm. to accommodate that. But you're always testing. And so the overall goal was just to, to get, achieve a certain profitability level. And then how they did it, there was a lot of discretion and they would test ideas. And you know, the, the expectation is that if we test enough, we'll find the idea that works. Okay. And so they get rewarded not so much on this specific idea, but on finding some idea that's going to work. So that's where the corporate goal is more vague. But if you told me you've got to make this specific product work, and that's actually one thing I don't like being at a, uh, you know, sort of uh, the more junior levels, when if you're assigned a particular project that you don't know whether it's going to work, that's the gamble I'm taking. And it may or may not work. And I, my bonus might completely depend on that. Um, and, you know, if my manager or the executive at the top has 10 such projects, probably one of them will work and they'll get the bonus. But then as to who succeeds within the team, there's a very random element there. So let's jump into a kind of a segment where we uh, cross compare your experience from an, an, from an enterprise experience uh, towards more of a startup, um, more at a granular level and see kind of how you encountered uh, innovation on a day-to-day -day basis. So like you started talking about it, but I want to kind of go a bit deeper. You know, between a startup versus enterprise, how would you ideate and validate an innovation? Like what, what, what goes to the process? Yeah, so um, yeah, I mentioned that it really depends, I think, um, on the scope, right? Um, if it's already part of your business as usual, test refine cycle, like you mentioned at Capital One, mm -hmm. you know, we just made those decisions at um, regular business meetings. We said, oh, we tested A versus B, A was better, let's expand the scope of the test, confirm our read, you know, but mm -hmm. continue testing B maybe at a smaller scale, right? So you sort of begin, like I, I call it a Bayesian, you know, I, I think I'll describe it as a Bayesian approach where as I get more information about something, I'll put more weight on it and then gradually confirm it. And then if it turns out I had a lucky uh, outcome the first time, my second test would, would go against it, then I would scale back. So it's really just adjusting my, my mm -hmm. investments um, as we go along. That, if you did that, you know, as part of your business as usual, you can gradually evolve your product parameters or your, your configurations to, to take advantage of you know, what works best at that time. Um, that's self-contained with a business unit and almost no escalations needed for that. Um, I've also been in a situation in a big company where we wanted to build a new system. Um, it exceeded the current established budget for the year. So we had to go to these committees, leadership panels. So we called it the star chamber. We had to go up to present. Star chamber. And yeah, it <laughs> okay. was like a very high stakes. You get 15 minutes to present your business case and then people would sign off. And it was like, um, sometimes perplexing to me as to what they would approve versus what they wouldn't approve. I had gone in once, um, they've been approving a $2 million here, three hundred, uh, like $3 million there, a few million dollars there. And then I was only asking for, you know, a hundred thousand that year to 
finish off and fix one defect in an existing system we had already. I said, look, you've invested so much in the system, 100,000 is all we need to make it even more valuable to us. And then they said, no. I, <laughs> it was like sometimes those uh, decisions are very difficult to figure out. And I think part of that is knowing how to navigate the system, working um, beforehand so that when you go in, you can succeed. So mm -hmm. um, being good with and having good relationships with all the other functional leads is very useful in that type of situation. So I've seen it where as I said, you talk to very few people, get it part of business as usual. I've also seen it where you have to go in, present to this, and sometimes you get approved, sometimes you don't. Then you're on the hook when you spend that, you better deliver this also, and then that just added to your objectives. So out of curiosity, how many people would you have to speak to in order to get uh, something greenlit? On an average basis, um, yeah. or with yeah, your so different you experience? Get, yeah, it, it's the business unit, and then um, any stakeholders. So you know, if it's one, two, three functional units, got to get those on board, and then we go and like the more cross-functional support you can get, and you go in to make that presentation. Especially if they come in and join you to mm -hmm. pre present the case, it makes it easier to get that approved. Um, mm -hmm. The presentation was usually to you know high-level executives from all over the entire larger group like enterprise or capital markets or, or portfolio function at FAMA, you know, you'd have probably five, six, seven functions or executives there who would then weigh in on it. And then they had several advisors with them and they had already reviewed this. So they kind of had an idea whether they liked it or not beforehand, but then they would also listen um, for, and ask some final questions um, and then go through that. Then we'd hear back maybe later on that. So it could be, you know, as I said, like, 10 or even a dozen high-level executives, but there's a lot of work that goes in beforehand talking to other folks to get them. Um, I, I would guess it's a bit like lobbying for, for legislation. You've got to okay. get all the, all the people on board or, or at different levels so that they can bubble it up also. And so how, how long is the average lead time before an idea is, is greenlit? Um, again, like, yeah, so that could take, um, a few weeks, like it depends on the cycle. If uh, I think our so-called star chamber meetings were um, once, uh, I think monthly or quarterly. And mm -hmm. if you missed this last cycle, you went on the agenda and now you got to wait either the one month or three months to the next one to get the, the green light. And so um, sometimes you could do it quickly because you're at the end of that, right? So the next meeting is in two weeks. So, okay, we better scramble, work really hard over time, get the presentation done in the business case, get everybody on board. We can get it done quickly, but we are at the mercy of that, that scheduling. If it's three months, you know, then I got to wait there. And then if we're at the end of the agenda, but they didn't get time to come to us, oh boy, you got to wait another three months. <laughs> and so how would you, like, I'm just really curious, like, what do you go into this presentation meeting with the stakeholders? Like, what do you, what do you showcase in terms of like, I don't know, ROI or metrics or reporting? Oh, it, it depends on what I'm trying to do. Like if it's a, if it's a system, then it's really what it's supporting, what it's enabling, right? So the before, after, yeah, it's really the, the, here's what the cost is and here's what's the benefit to us. It might be risk reduction, right? Like sort of risk management. So mm -hmm. it's like we're eliminating this um, high severity, low likelihood outcome or a regulatory concern. So we have to address it anyway. Um, but the, then, you know, you might be how much is it worth to them to, to fix it also? Then can you do it with less? Um, Looking at the alternatives, right, especially if there's a lot of money involved, well, did you do your due diligence? Um, if you're getting uh, external vendors involved, right, the vendors have to be vetted. Are they good vendors? Um, do they have the right um, clearances or 
certifications. Big companies are, are much more strict about that uh, than small companies. So there's a lot of things. There's procurement looked at it, right? Because I cannot bid it out myself directly. Procurement has to run it. <laughs> and so there's a lot of uh, pre-work that might have to be done, especially if you involve external vendors. You can try to do it yourself, that's different. Um, or if someone signs up to do it and, and they, they sign up for a certain budget. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. And then how do you follow up? Like, so say you get approval for an idea, you go into production or you start working on it. What, what are some of the metrics that you present to the stakeholders that gave the approval on like a quarterly or semi-annual or annual basis? Um, you know, fortunately I didn't do too many of those. I think those were very stressful. Um, but like <laughs> if, uh, we had a technology project that we wanted to put in. And then it was just giving milestones to completion. And, um, you know, okay. the, technology, the, the, the folks who were actually building it were giving a lot of those updates. We didn't really have to go back to that group. It was more just providing updates um, and to the, the, I guess, the executive who owned that. We had to get approval for budget, but then it was the executive um, in that group or who was sponsoring it who then held us accountable to it because it was in their objectives. And then they were the ones giving us our performance review at the end of the year. So, you know, then my performance depended on delivering on those objectives also um, as, as promised. Um, but, you know, like what passes off a delivery that at the beginning, as we learn reality of the situation, as I mentioned, you might need a version two. Mm -hmm. And then you got to review the whole cycle again if, you, if we need extra budget. So, you know, one thing I did learn is um, probably worth baking in budget for a version two as part of the initial request. That's and then great, if I yeah. don't need a version two, I can say, hey, I beat my budget. Yeah, yeah. And you you come up with some some room still left. So that's that's really interesting. But thanks, thanks, yeah, thanks for one, sharing one of all the, that. One of the, the, the sort of mottos we had actually, uh, or the um, technology teams used to discuss with me and we used to joke about it was, you know, saying you better get it right the first time. You won't get a, ch a second chance at, at fixing any defects from version one. So I, I, I learned that lesson. So let's, let's talk about that a bit more. I mean, you have a lot of experience working at large companies like Fannie Mae and others. What did you learn about innovation uh, while there? Um, you know, as I, I think I've alluded to it, innovations happen in so many different ways, right? I can be part of business as usual and so on, or it could be, I actually I've um, had some analytical um, ideas that just was so convincing, I didn't even have to try to sell it. It just took over very quickly. Um, so, you know, it's harder to, do, to get those rather than business as usual. I think um, if you have the right structure, a regular structure that um, uh, sort of optimizes around, you know, what uh, adjustments you can make. Um, but I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, we often hear stories about that big idea to change an industry, right? Or the visionary behind it. And then um, one thing that always strikes me is that person is always convinced the idea was correct. They had the right thing. They were going to succeed. Um, and, you know, I'm usually also, I tend to believe that, probably there were a lot of other people with very similar ideas and they also believe they were going to succeed, but we don't hear about them because they actually didn't succeed. And, you know, I think you have previous guests who said uh, success rate of, of pilot projects is about one in 10. Um, and it's not always even the best idea that wins, right? There are external factors that influence the outcome. Um, uh, there might be influential early adopters that discovered this, this product first or this company's product first and popularized that before they found something else that might've been better but then it's too late, you've got the network effect. Um, or another company figured out how to adapt the system because everybody had legacy constraints. Um, or um, 
the idea has been out there, but nobody figured out exactly how to do it. I think um, uh, like the iPhone is a good example. I didn't actually think I needed an iPhone until they demonstrated what it could do. I said, why would I ever use a touch phone? Right? But they figured out how to get it to work and, and actually market it also. Um, but anybody potentially could have won it um, if they moved quickly. So you've got to get there first. I think there's so many random factors. And um, I, because of that, I don't like to bet on just like, I have, it's got to work out A, B, C, D in the sequence and that will work. So when you ask me to give a vision, what's my vision on the future of this? I tend to be a bit vague. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult to sell that to people when it's vague. It's vague. But, um, you know, I think I can see different possibilities of that. And you can sell the different options that, that could come out of this. But I cannot guarantee that, that is the particular iteration that we're going to end up with. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think innovation is something that there's, you have to accept the unknowns and you have to be flexible. You, you mentioned this um, and, you know, have risk, you know, be okay with risk and uh, having that mindset. Um, so let's, let's talk about now with your role at Empower. At Empower. Um, let's learn a bit more about your innovation process there. And how do you go about building out new programs that, 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 that you run? scratch so so yeah i mean the the secret about my behind my title you know credit innovation actually is that um everything we're doing is in some sense new our market segment is um a niche it's um international graduate students primarily so we talk about global students but where we are most price competitive is international graduate mm -hmm. students um and, and in terms of what product we're offering so everything we do is is um it, gearing towards innovating what these, what would what's be the right product for them. Um, you know, adding to a certain wrinkle, right? Most student loans have a co-signer or um, if you are looking at um, student loans from other countries, they require um, collateral. So in some countries, um, they'll put the family home next to that because studying in the US is very expensive. It's the yeah. value of a mortgage. So they'll pledge the family home as collateral. We are actually doing a product that has no collateral and no co-signers. So that frightens a lot of people to saying, how are you gonna control the risk? So that's why we have to innovate. You know, everything is innovating because we are not underwriting it the same way. I'm mm -hmm. actually placing a bet on, um, on students. This student has great potential. They have to achieve that potential if they're gonna pay us back because I have no collateral or a co-signer to fall back on. So we have to come up with innovations on how we've identified potential. But then also, you know, if a borrower doesn't achieve that potential, um, I either got overestimated that potential mm -hmm. or there's something preventing them from achieving that potential. So what is it? And then how can I help them overcome those barriers? So we have to develop processes that's very different to most lending um, practices. Instead of saying, you know, like if you're chasing after a delinquent borrower, it's talking about when can you pay me, et cetera. Well, these guys are not going to pay me if they don't have a job. So it's more of, um, you know, what sort of employment do you have? What are you trying? How can we help you find a job and things like that? We're building up programs like that. So we're innovating on that front, how to help borrowers because we're investing in borrowers. So just even the approach to dealing with the borrower is different. So when you look at that, I've got processes that are new to, to almost all of the lending function, um, you know, but I still have to run the business at the same time. And I actually like that. So the innovation responsibility is falling on the same person who has to run the business as usual on a day-to-day mm -hmm. basis. And, that's how, and so we organize to do this. Um, everybody in the team has a um, 
you know, like a mandate to innovate. And in order to, so we have to hire people who can innovate, but at the same time, like, you know, we're not going to hire the person who's just going to follow um, a script, read out, you know, here's a call script, etc. They have to be able to do that, but they also have to be able to look at that and realize we need to improve the call script in this scenario or these other scenarios. So we hire um, higher level, higher functioning employees to do the same role that um, other companies would because we're building this from scratch. Um, I, find, I find that's more um, conducive to innovation because um, you know, if, if you work with somebody who's outside the team, we sort of have them write shutdown for two weeks. That first impression is somewhat limited. They see what happens most of the time. They, give, they can give me a solution that helps me 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. But that 20%, which causes me most of my headaches and problems, they may not have seen it at all. And they don't really appreciate that if they haven't worked in that business function. That's why I think innovation works best in, from, from my situation, coming from within the business function. The person doing the work recommends how to do it, works with a technology team to come up with requirements to solve that problem. Maybe the technology team has to offer certain possibilities, but the person who has the most stake in defining the outcome knows what's you know problematic for them or not problematic. Mm-hmm. So it really sounds like innovation can come from anywhere with an empire, uh, from the mm-hmm. from 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 the customer support or the sales team to all the way to, to the technology. Is it like how did how did this get created? That type of mindset was it like a very top down approach from the leadership saying, okay, like you know everybody should have this type of mentality um, where we're open to having, you know, people in the entry level roles come up with ideas. How does that, how did that get created? Um, and how does it flow then into like the, the funnel of idea all the way to, you know, build? Um, yeah, that's a great question. We actually include that in our corporate culture. So one of, um, you know, like, just with a typical performance management, you have your business objective, business results, then there's some sort of uh, soft skills that they'll measure. I think, you know, companies might call it competencies or, um, you know, in, in, at Empower, we call it mindset. So we've got several mindsets um, that we, okay. we evaluate every employee on. And one of the mindsets is um, boldness. So, um, you know, like they come that. up with creative ideas. Are they willing to embrace change, right? Someone who just says, no, I don't want to do something different, even though we can demonstrate analytically that most likely it's going to work better. Someone who just doesn't want to change, uh, they're going to see that in their feedback. Um, so we encourage people to do that. We also encourage um, or, or value uh, collaboration. So people who are inclusive in their thinking. So if I want to solve a problem, I don't just solve the problem for myself. Let me solve it for the company. Mm-hmm. You know, so how can I influence broad, beyond what my day-to-day needs are? And so we are encouraging employees to work together, find out about problems elsewhere, because, you know, I might have an idea that can help marketing, even though I don't work in marketing, or somebody in um, an operational role, customer relations might have um, uh, an idea that could help us on credit, because they observe a few things and say, you know, we get a lot of this, they always get declined, they, they see an observation, and that funnels through to us. So um, we encourage and actually um, measure employees on how well they can integrate themselves throughout the company and yeah. part of that part of the whole company as opposed to i just do my own thing and stay in my own silo that's that's uh it's really phenomenal to hear that i mean at even a crowd linker and it looks like that empowers the same thing you're only as good as the people that you work with right at the end of the day 
having that type of mindset and boldness, I really like that. How, out of curiosity, how have you kept, or how has the team uh, been motivated and focused during the pandemic? Everybody working from home, how have you encouraged that still drive and motivation to still be intact? Yeah, I, I you know, I like working in credit, uh, sensitive areas, because um, the demand for us, our skill is counter-cyclical, right? So during a recession, you have delinquencies and defaults increasing. So there's actually a greater demand for credit professionals during this time. Um, and actually, the worst time to be a credit professional is when everything is going well. Like when I, I joined Fannie Mae in 2003, their um, credit-related losses and expenses that year was less than $40 million. $40 million. It was a fraction of a, a basis point. It wasn't even a, a basis point. Um, there was a fraction of a basis point that year. Um, and there's a lot of pressures, like what is credit doing? You know, losses are so low. You couldn't probably like, you know, like it's the business that, that might get credit for it or, you know, what are you doing? And then you're just holding back the business if you are and you're saying, no, we got to keep losses down, right? Because losses are so low. But when losses are high, like there's no question about, it. you know, credit professionals have a lot of work to do. We want to bring it back under control. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when, when, I first started, like I, I in before I went through my, my first recession. I said I was always jealous of these people who had ten years experience and had recession experience. Like every, you know, recruiters always say, "Have you been through a recession?" You know, you're not. Then they, they sort of view me as less valuable. I'm thinking, come on, I'm, I'm equally smart. Why, you know, why do I have to wait for a recession to prove my worth? Now on the flip side, you know, like recession number three for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I can now say three recessions. <laughs> Um, but all, all kidding aside, um, you know, I, I tell my team, like, you're going to learn something that is so difficult to learn um, anywhere else because you're actually going through it live, learning how yeah. to deal with it. Um, and this is one of the biggest recessions, you know, we've seen in a long time. And uh, this is experience and career development that you won't get at this intensity anywhere else. Um, we want to come out of this having the best in, in industry performance, mm -hmm. you know, and that will enhance everyone's career because um, everybody else, every other lender wants to know how we did it. And so far it's working out. Um, if you actually look at some of our credit metrics, we uh, were not as badly affected as um, the overall student loan industry. So, you know, there's something with our loans that's working better and we've actually improved the credit performance of our, of our newest loans, um, mm. uh, the, the, the newer loans compared to the previous loans during this time. Um, you know, despite the fact that just about everyone stopped lending, um, mm. at least internationally, we stopped lending um, as all these uncertainties are worked through. Um, but our metrics really haven't deteriorated. In fact, um, you know, it, it's about the same as they were a year ago, which is good yes. given the conditions. Uh, I, it's, I think the last six months, uh, I think for a lot of companies, regardless of size, with everything that's happened, it's kind of made them a bit more aggressive and motivated to like find new ways to pivot or to change or the mindset, you know, as the business. Um, how do you see your role changing post COVID? Do you see any impact there? Do you think you're going to be spending more time on something else or less time? Um, what does that look like? Um, I think post COVID is going to be more of how do we like um, continue to weather out the post-recession effects, right? Um, sometimes recessionary effects might take a while longer, especially for students, um, because the job market may come back, but there's still that 
previous cohort of graduates who are competing for these jobs they may not have had yet. So you got to work through this overhang of supply, right, for 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 jobs that um, or for for employees. Um, so there could be you know some challenges for a while. So that's like I think where my focus is yeah. going to be is helping borrowers you know build out our career support um, platform so that we can help borrowers get an advantage. Um, you know this is also a competitive advantage for us because. Um, it, we get better results for the same borrower that we might originate as someone else if they're not providing that support. Um, so it's a competitive advantage is difficult to to copy. Um, and so, you know, I think there is the aspect of managing and helping like clean up the tail end um, as we come out of recession. Um, but other than that, you, you know, I think um, rebuilding uh, you know, rebuilding aspects of the team because, you know, we, during post-COVID, we did slow down our lending. So I got to catch up on that again. We got to rehire people or hire more people as we go back to growth. Um, so that's going to be a fair amount of recruiting going on um, and growth go, uh, and go there. Um, and setting up, as I mentioned before, like, you know, flexibility of optionality. How do I set up processes that, that help me scale quickly? And, and be able and to launch new products quickly. What, I mean, COVID or not, what, what emerging trends are you most excited about in the student learning space? And how do you think that might impact your role? Mm, yeah, that's very interesting. I think um, in student lending, there are, you know, there's um, a lot of talk about trying to get to be a more efficient loan origination process. It's very um, archaic. Uh, again, like anytime there's a government backstop, whether it was mortgages or student loans, um, you know, if there's a government backstop, then everyone just follows the, the, the big player or the dominant market share. Um, mm. But if you look at it, student loan lending like um, mortgages is still somewhat behind technologically. There's a lot of paper involved. We, you know, we do, we do electronic documents now, but it's a scanned image. Um, we get financial statements we have to review, et cetera. So I think the development is really along the lines of going more and more to e lending um, sort of electronic documents, but also automating that so that humans don't have to review it. They, they can make the judgments on it, but mm -hmm. I don't really need people to go read a document, enter numbers and do all that. I really want them to make the judgment. Is this a good borrow or not? And really only a judgment on the cases where it's not clear cut. There are a lot of places where it's clear cut, we should automate all of that. So I think automating this, changing the cost structure, and then as we change the cost structure and can get to scale, we get benefits on funding, et cetera, and we can change our pricing points mm -hmm. potentially and either open up to borrowers who are previously not profitable or even pass on some of these savings to, to borrowers and customers, making mm -hmm. uh, education a lot more accessible by, by reducing the cost of that. It's, you're, you're really kind of hitting on a lot of points there about automation and uh, probably rubber, like processing automation, things like that. Um, are there any innovative projects that you could talk about that you could share with us? Um, no, that, I mean, well, that... I mentioned the, um, yeah, I mentioned our, you know, support program for borrowers. We call that path to success. You know, we're trying to help borrowers get on the path to success. And um, that actually is very ambitious overall. If you look at the long-term vision, I really don't know how it's going to end up. But we're talking about, as I mentioned, um, career support, right? There's several elements to career support, whether it's coaching, resume review, um, job search, uh, advice, 
Uh, it could even be guidance interview preparation, right? There's a lot of different factors there. How do we build that out? Um, there are a lot of people who play in these spaces, but it's really integrating the different capabilities other folks have already and putting into a cohesive package. That's one aspect of it. We could also have, um, you know, leverage our borrower network to help each other, right? So I can build a community of borrowers that they can communicate with each other, share their insights and help each other um, learn instead of trying to do it all individually and reinventing the wheel each time. Um, we could also partner with businesses that provide um, either services or want to hire employees with specific skill sets. So building all these out, I think, is a big part of our innovation uh, plans. And I, as I said, I don't know where that's going, but we're trying anything and everything. So uh, throwing out a wide net there, I'm going to look at, you know, what words, and that's it. Like, I'll take the Bayesian approach. We'll try a few things. And um, we've had previous guests say, you're going to fail, fail quickly. So we'll learn what works, what doesn't work, and then make adjustments based on our learnings there and try the next thing. And where something looks promising, we will you know, double down on that a bit, increase our testing there until we get to a combination that works. Um, and so I really don't know what combination is going to work out at the end, but um, keeping the whole team motivated to try everything um, and working as a team, right, so that we can celebrate what we learned. This didn't work. That's a celebration because then we're going to think about it for a while. We can put it on the back burner and maybe we'll find an alternative configuration in the future that works. But you know, that should be rewarded rather, rather than just say, oh, we failed. I don't want someone to feel bad because they tried it. They're part of the team. Everyone signs up to try something. And I don't want to penalize someone who picked the wrong or was assigned the one, uh, one or two projects that didn't quite work out initially. They might work out in the end. Just on that, like, where do you draw your inspiration from? Um, I have a small network of very trusted um, colleagues, previous colleagues, and you know, good friends for that. So I, I really turn to, to them to get advice on that. Um, I try to pick up sort of tips whatever, wherever I can. So whether it's you know like the fireside chat series from from a crowd linker, you know, there's always an idea or two I can pick up. Um, sometimes I might have to sift through a fair amount of noise to get to that one gem. Um, so mm -hmm. I might have to make decisions about where to, to focus on. But I try to read, you know, like good, um, if I, I see someone recommend some, something that's good to read, I, I, I look at that um, and see what I can take out of it. And sometimes it might be that um, I don't have the opportunity to take advantage of that right now, but then I'll just file it away. So I actually have um, a reading folder in my email that I archive everything that possibly could be of benefit in the future. So I can look it up again later. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if it's a website, it might be better off to print out the page in case they take down the page. <laughs> so you have a printed okay. version of it. But anything that I might want to draw on that I don't think I'll remember later is always good to keep in mind. I mean, I have ideas that I am thinking I can deploy today that I might have come up with in previous companies that I never got the chance to use. But um, just, I think, as I mentioned, right, you know, being ready to take advantage of an opportunity, the more... Um, tools I have to take advantage of an opportunity, the better. So that increases my chances. It's a very probabilistic way of doing things. But um, you know, if I take 20 bets at 10% chance of success, I have a good chance of success versus taking two bets at 80%. Um, you know, I think I might prefer the 20 bets at 10%. You have a very mathematical approach to your decision-making. It's very interesting. Um, Cool. I just have a couple more questions, uh, Ken, and then we could uh, we could wrap up. Um, these are kind of more quick fire 
rapid answer kind of questions. Um, I just have two or three. Um, what is something innovation leaders should stop doing like right away starting tomorrow? Uh, stop doing? Um, I think thinking that there's only one solution like the, they have one very crystal clear cut like you know is it A, B, C, D. These are the four steps to succeed. I would never um, want to be that confident that it's A, B, C, D. It could be multiple paths to get to D or it could mm -hmm. be A, B, C, E, right? The outcome could be very different, but being open to that, I think gives you a better chance of succeeding if you have mm -hmm. multiple ways to succeed. Okay, and what, what, should they, like, what should they start doing right away, like aside from that? Um, looking at assessing, you know, where the constraints would be. Um, sometimes constraints are good um, because you, you actually can be more creative if you have enough constraints, right? Like, um, you know, I, I like to use this example. If um, someone told me to write a song, I don't know where to start. But then if you told me a genre, a subject matter, you know, maybe some instruments, I can actually be very creative in that, given those constraints. So, you know, actually looking at what constraints you have and then which ones are you, you are going to live with and which ones you want to get rid of. And then that's, that's just solution space, right? And then I think and we, sometimes we just have to say we, we are comfortable passing on an opportunity that's outside our solution space. And last question, what, what, uh, what would you recommend about sharpening an innovation mindset? Like you mentioned a few already. Any kind of tips or suggestions for the audience in terms of how to sharpen your innovation mindset? Um, I think just continuously learning, right? Um, I think I take an approach where if I don't know how to do something, as long as I know someone has done it, then I don't view it as something that's out of scope for what we can do. You know, there's a solution to it. I've seen it. I may not know how to do it. Somebody out there does, right? Maybe we can, we can learn it from research. Maybe I can find it on a YouTube video, for example, right? Or it might be mm -hmm. a bit more proprietary and you got to do a bit of reverse engineering. But I just generally think of what I need to do and then whether it's possible, not whether I know how to do it. And I think sometimes we limit ourselves based on what we know how to do and say, I only know how to do this. this like I only have a hammer and a screwdriver. So these are the only, t I, I'm only going to look at nails and, and screws, right? Um, but I look at, well, I don't know how to use a drill, but I might be able to learn from somebody and, mm -hmm. or, you know, different tools. Um, so be open to that. I think. Okay. Awesome. This is, uh, Ken, thank you so much. It's been uh, amazing hearing your journey your experience and sharing it with us. I really, really appreciate it. So thanks so much. I'm sure the audience is gonna um, find it very valuable as well. So thank you so much. And thanks for, and thanks for joining our, our, um, our series. Oh, it's been a uh, pleasure. And I've been following the series. So I'm very excited to see the rest of it. Awesome. Well, we got a great lineup and um, great segue into my last point. Uh, we, the next episode that we're gonna have, um, is going to be with Christian Maxisi. He's the director of strategy and innovation at Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, which is the largest sports uh, entertainment company in, in Canada and I think in even North America. Uh, and he's going to be talking about driving the spirit of innovation within their organization. So stay tuned for that.